0: Good morning, what a blessing for the Lord to bring us back together as his people again this week to pray, to sing, to hear from him, from his word. Praise God. Let me invite you to open with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John's Gospel, John chapter 6, and you can find verse 60. There is a pattern that we can see when we step back far enough from the narrative here in John. There's a pattern to the three years of Jesus' ministry, and it can be helpful for us to have in mind. We've seen in John 2-4, to uh, Jesus did a uh, Galilee, Jerusalem-Galilee move, ending with that return to Galilee, to the north in Galilee, because it had become dangerous for him to stay down in Judea, in Jerusalem in particular. His popularity had made him a target. In chapters 5 to 10, we see another pattern. We're in the end of chapter 6 this morning. In chapters 5 to 10, he does the opposite. He goes Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem. And when he finishes that path, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem, in chapters 5 to 10, and comes back to Jerusalem, he won't leave again. He won't leave that southern region of Judea again. Uh, Well, we come this morning to, in the end of chapter 6, again, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem. We come this morning to what marks the end of that Galilean ministry. The next thing that we'll hear after this morning will be an account of Jesus down at a feast in Jerusalem. And in the south, he will stay. I take the time to remind you of that context for this reason. That means that what we're seeing this morning is we're seeing how Jesus' public ministry in Galilee ends, as far as the narrative presents to us. He's finished the message that he came to bring them in the north, he has revealed who he is and what will be the response. That's the question for us this morning. We have, I think, far more clearly in our minds, we have a sense of how his ministry in Judea ends in the south because of the events of the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. We know that his ministry in Judea ends in rejection, arrest, crucifixion. But what about the end of his ministry up in the north, in the northern region of Galilee? It wouldn't be unreasonable for us to expect the same kind of end, given that, for example, Isaiah 53, nearly 700 years before Christ, summed up the Messiah's reception with the words, despised and rejected by men. This is how the prophet uh, predicted the reception of this Messiah when he would come. So it wouldn't be unreasonable for us to expect that, at the end of his ministry in the north. And it's quite true, in fact. In large part, that's exactly what we're going to find this morning. We're going to find, now that Jesus is finished revealing who he is, we're going to find a great deal of rejection. But what's especially helpful about this ending passage in chapter 6 that we're looking at today, is that we not only hear about the reaction of mankind... We also get to hear Jesus' own commentary on their reaction. That's really something for God to give us in his word. What we'll find this morning are three reactions to Jesus' offer of himself. We've been seeing, we've been hearing him offer himself for three weeks now in this particular discourse. And we find three reactions to him. These three reactions are always the possible reactions to Jesus. We see them on display today, all the time. And what we'll do this morning is we'll examine each of them. We'll see them play out here in this synagogue in Capernaum on this day, and we'll hear God's word describe each one to us and explain them. Before we go further, let's hear the passage. I'll be reading John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. It'll speak here in verse 60 of them hearing it. They've heard all of what he has just said about himself as the bread of life and as that which they are utterly in need of. Beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Three reactions that we see on display here this morning. The first we see in verses 60 to 66. It's by far and by a wide margin the greatest response that we see here in terms of numbers. What we see is the rejection of those who belong to the world. So this is the first response Rejection. Now, in terms of that broad outline for this morning, the three responses, it gets a little bit complicated here in 60 to 66 because he begins to tell us about the rejection starting in verse 60. It will find its completion or its, uh, its actuality in verse 66. But in between there, we also hear Jesus give two responses to their hesitation before they give their final decision. You could say two final exhortations to them before they settle in their rejection of him. Look at verse 60. This is how this begins. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now this, I think, is important for us to get right. There are a couple of ways that we could think of how, what, what they're saying here. There are two ways, really, that something like this could be hard, what Jesus has just said to them. It could be hard to understand, or it could be hard to accept. Hard to understand or hard to accept. And I think there's no doubt that, in some ways, both of those are the case here, in what Jesus just told them. I doubt that they actually think Jesus to be commending cannibalism to them when he said... My flesh is true food. I don't think they thought him to be suggesting cannibalism. But that doesn't mean that they aren't wrestling with understanding what he has said. However, what they're emphasizing here in their words isn't the hard-to-understand idea, but the hard-to-accept idea. What they say is, who can listen to it? Literally, who can hear it? Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 25, those who hear will live. And we talked then about their use of that phrase, that it's not just about something bouncing off of an eardrum. This is spoken to mean things like hearing with approval, taking the thing I'm hearing, taking it into me. This is what it is to hear and then to live. And the question is, who can hear it? It's a good translation. Who can listen to it? They're certainly finding some mystery in what Jesus has just said. But some of the things that he has said have been unmistakable. His claims have made it clear, for example, haven't they, if you've been here? That it is no longer possible to follow him unreflectively. Or to follow him without committing oneself entirely to him. That demand is crystal clear in what Jesus has said. Whatever he may have meant with the eating his flesh and drinking his blood picture, they might be saying to themselves, whatever he meant, it is clear that he is demanding complete and total dependency upon himself. That's the demand that he is making to me as I stand here listening to him. There were a couple of comments that I read this week that I think were helpful and right on. Morris said this, he said, it was the part they could understand, rather than the part they could not, that bothered them. And listen to the detail given by a man named William Barclay. He said, here we come upon a truth that reemerges in every age. I wonder if you sense this. Time and again, it is not the intellectual difficulty of accepting Christ, which keeps men from becoming Christians. It is the height of Christ's moral demand, To this day, many a man's refusal of Christ comes not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. This crowd is unwilling to receive the idea that their need of him could possibly extend to such a degree as he has been describing, as he's been claiming. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And what Jesus proceeds to do then is to state for them in sort of this penultimate, this this completed uh, way for them to make their decision on. He's stating two evidences of that helpless state. It's interesting because we've been hearing him for, for, this is the third week now, relay the reality of their helplessness. And yet still as he does it here, he does it in a little bit of a different way. He makes two points in his reply to them here about us. About you and me and them as they stand there listening to him. Two points that drive home the reality of our helplessness. Of our utter need for Jesus Christ. And these evidences sort of encapsulate his claim. The whole message from the previous 59 verses. We'll see them both in verses 61 to 65 before we hear their rejection in 66 and then see the the other two responses. But in 61 to 65, here are the two evidences that Jesus responds to them with. The first one, we could say it like this. Both of them about unbelief. Here's what he's telling them. Unbelief is spiritual death that requires spiritual resurrection. This is why you are so in need, so dependent. There is a death that I'm telling you, you are under, and life will require resurrection. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Are you offended at the level of need or dependency that I'm claiming you have of me? Well, then let's set up a scenario, he says. Come on, verse 62, let's set up a scenario and let's just imagine how this would play out. Verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? We spent a whole Sunday morning on Jesus' concept of the Son of Man earlier in this study. He has already well established to the crowds that he's talking about himself when he speaks of the Son of Man. He's also already claimed to have descended from heaven, John 3, 13. He's already made that claim. So here he simply says, what if I returned right now? No more work. Not finishing what I came to do. What if I just returned to where I was before? And then he gives them what what clearly I think is, is a logical argument We call these syllogisms. You ever heard that word? Two premises, this thing and this thing. And if these are true, well then something is inevitably true as a result. This is what he does here. It's beautiful. Uh, The two premises are in verse 63. And the conclusion he leaves to their imagination. It won't be hard for us to see what his conclusion is. But do do you see each of the premises? Here's the first one he gives. The first statement. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, is the first statement that he makes. Think about all that he has just said to them and to us about our needs in this life and the provisions that God gives in this life and how none of them are ultimately successful in attaining true, enduring life. Has he made that clear enough yet? Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, miraculously provided, food to meet their physical needs, and guess what? They still died. And that was just an example of all the physical provisions that God gives us in this life. They're blessings, they do good for us, but none of them bring with them true life. And he he puts it here in that simple way. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We could think, too, about the Old Testament witness on this question of where does life come from? If the flesh doesn't give life, what does give life? And there's a whole host of ways that the Old Testament brings this point to bear, but I'll just uh, remind you of two of them. Think of Genesis chapter 1. Think of Genesis 1 verse 2. It reads like this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And it's in that condition, with the presence of the Spirit, there and ready to be worked through, that life comes to the earth. Think about the picture of Ezekiel 37. And I would ask you to just keep your finger here and flip there for a moment. Ezekiel 37. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, (laughs) Daniel, if you find one of those, you're very close there. Ezekiel 37. We hear in verse 1 what's happening here. God is giving a vision to Ezekiel. He is speaking about the new covenant, the work he's going to be doing. In verse 1, we learn that this vision has to do with Ezekiel looking and seeing a valley full of bones. Skeleton bones. It says dry bones. They're bones that are dead enough that all of the sinew and the flesh is gone. They're just dry, dry bones. And he asks the question to Ezekiel in verse 3. Son of man, can these bones live? Life is the question. Is life possible here? Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. Look at verse 4. Now, this is explained down in verse 14 with these words. What's meant by this vision? Well, he puts it simply there. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. If the flesh does not give life, what does? It is the spirit who gives life. So that's the first premise that is stated here in this argument. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Here's statement one. Now here comes statement two. Come back into our passage in John 6. The second premise that Jesus gives them is this. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. My words, he claims, are spirit and life. My words to you are spirit. As my words go out, They are the creative power of God. For those who receive Jesus' words, they enter that person and they create life. This is what happens. He already said this back in John 5.24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words, remember what we've already seen, that doesn't mean it bounces off of the eardrum, whoever takes in my words into them, whoever hears and receives my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There is a relationship between the receiving of the word of Jesus and the presence of life. True life. Not the life that the manna gave. True life that the true bread can give alone. My words are spirit, he says. And therefore to you they represent life. In other words, Jesus' words don't just tell about life. They themselves bring life. Now connect it with premise one. Premise one, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Premise two, my words are spirit and therefore life. So what's the conclusion here? Remember the opening question? What if I just left right now? The conclusion is something like this. If I go away from you, you have no chance of life in you. Because you depend on the Spirit, and yet you receive his benefit only through my words. So we see here, as he's closing up this confrontation with them, Jesus does not step back in the claims he's been making. He doubles down. He leaves them with the demand crystal clear. You are utterly dependent upon me. You must come to me. You must believe upon me. So that's all evidence number one in his reply here with these two premises. This first evidence was, remember, unbelief is spiritual death and it requires spiritual resurrection, which only my words can bring. The second evidence he gives them before they finally reject him, we see in verses 64 and 65. This also is a statement about unbelief. And we could put it this way. He's going to make clear to them, unbelief is our starting point. And rescue from it is a gift. Notice he's going to acknowledge the presence of unbelief in 64. And then he's going to diagnose it in 65. Look again here. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. Unless it is granted him by the Father.'" John adds this aside here in verse 64, pointing out that Jesus is not guessing at the presence of unbelief there in the crowd. He knows with certainty that it's there, which means Jesus was not caught off guard by their response and by any of the rejection he's receiving. He was not surprised. And it's because he knows us. He knows what is in the heart of man, he knows our state. He knows our helplessness. He knows our depravity. It's why he came. He came to rescue from that very state. One commentator described the point like this He said, Unbelief is to be expected apart from a divine miracle. It is impossible for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father gives the grace to do so. Left to themselves. Has this not been true of us? Left to themselves. Sinners prefer their sin. Conversion is always a work of grace. So the point that our Lord makes here once again is that unbelief is actually our starting point. From which we need rescue. And that rescue must be, he says, granted by the Father. Now when you hear those two descriptions of human helplessness, does it inspire in you a great... Pride in the human condition? Is that the effect that this has to hear about ourselves like this? Does it inspire great hope and confidence in human potential, in human achievement before the face of a holy God? These two descriptions. Unbelief is our starting point. God must rescue us from it. And by the way, it's spiritual death. So we must be spiritually resurrected by God's spirit in order to live. These things do not exactly inspire pride in us, do they? In fact, it inspires rather the opposite. It humbles us. It takes us where we are in our eyes and it lowers us. We read in James 4, 6. The reason why that would be a very good thing. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, this is exactly what we ought to expect. If our God and his kindness would reach out and tell us the truth about ourselves, we would expect it to humble us, not to lift us up in our own eyes. Because he draws near to the lowly and the brokenhearted. And what we find, even in the rest of our passage this morning, is that this distinction between pride and humility is borne out in people's response to Jesus' claims. We're in the midst of seeing three responses to this claim that our Lord has now finished making. He's done. This claim that we are utterly dependent upon Him. How will we respond to that? Well, we're in the midst of the first Response of rejection. Because they began to suggest it in verse 60. It comes in its fullness in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. He says, after this. Notice that. They were voicing their difficulty. in accepting this strong claim of Jesus. About their needy estate. They voiced their hesitation in verse 60. He responds by offering no help at all, really, no alleviation to their tension, just a couple of points driving home the nail. And it settles the matter for them. After this, they walk with him no longer. What we're witnessing in this response, we need to be very clear, we're witnessing the natural response of lost humanity. It's the natural response Because the natural posture of our hearts is pride. Pride rejects this claim outright. This claim that we are helpless. That we are desperate for mercy. For God's grace. Not for something owed to us or earned by us. But something that would be bestowed as a gift. Pride rejects that claim. And it seems to me that in reflecting on this display of pride that we're seeing here as they walk away from him. But there are a couple of principles that we should take out of this and take notice of before we move on to the second response. Here's one. We ought to notice consciously, and at this point I'm drawing us out of the story and the account and, and into this room here. Well, I've said things about our natural posture being one of pride, Uh, And I'm thankful to be in a room that responds to such a claim with with a lot of nods of the head. There are lots of nods of assent. And praise God for that clarity. I just think it's good for us to notice how good we are at nodding in approval at that statement when it's made in general. But then how easily we can deny it when we think about ourselves in specific ways. Yes, yes, we are weak, we're prideful, we need the gracious, patient power of our God for any good thing, yes, yes. And then we read something, we discuss something, we think to ourselves about specific concepts, things like bitterness, jealousy, greed, laziness, the list could go on. And what quickly comes to our minds? Well, what quickly comes to our minds are examples in other people that we know, that, uh, and we never often stop to consider the ways that such traits are alive and active in me right now, today. My heart is not broken at the consideration of those specifics. It is lifted up in a prideful, faux sympathy for other poor folk who would struggle with these things. We're just so good at that. And yet the nodding of the head in general means that I should expect to find myself when those are put before me. And my friends, it's just a needed reminder for us here that we, you, me, our sinful flesh, which remember is not a foreign thing to me, it's me. It continues to find its starting point in a place of pride. It continues to pull toward pride. This display we're seeing here this morning of pride that rejects Jesus outright should leave its impression on us in the way that we are watchful of our own sinful hearts. It means something about me. It means something about my need to guard myself. A second application here before we move on, I would in to you from verse 66, could be this, especially if you remember what this crowd was doing 24 hours prior to this on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, as they turn back now and no longer walk with him. This is a fairly obvious application. My, but doesn't this reveal truth about popularity? And the doomed-to-failure approach of marking success by popular response. Someone put it very simply when they said, such is popularity, here today and gone tomorrow. And we need to remind ourselves regularly of this because we think often and we make our decisions in terms of how we define failure and success. Failure and success when marked by the world's standards of things like numbers, things like uh, general uh, being pleased with these sorts of, of, uh, of popularity measuring devices. It is no indication at all that we're doing something wrong or that we're doing something right. What is the measure? Well, it's simple. Faithfulness to God's word is the measure. Humility before our Lord is the measure. These are the marks of success. Here Jesus succeeded in what he came and set about to do. He always succeeded. And here success looked like the mass exodus of a large number of his disciples. So now this first response of rejection fueled by sinful pride... It leaves us then in a moment of introspection. It's a right and healthy question to ask. Where is this deadly pride alive and doing its corrosive work in me? And I pray that this is one way that God will use his word in our lives today and this week. To be looking, searching, rooting out sinful pride. As John Owen once said, we must be killing Sin or it be killing us. As we see it on display in his word, God is blessing us with this kind of reminder. Now we can turn as we go to verse 67 because we see a second response now, not rejection. We see a response of humble acceptance. Look at verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus asks them this question, and it gives the twelve the opportunity to take their stand publicly. He is not actually wondering if they want to go away or not. He knows that they will not go. In fact, he even grammatically, he even words his question in a way that expects a no answer. He knows this. And their reply, as is increasingly common, comes from their representative. Who's the group's representative? Well, it's Peter. And this is a famous reply, isn't it? Because of the power of what he says and how he puts it. I would have us notice in particular this morning what he's emphasizing In the way he answers Jesus. And I'd suggest to you that what we hear in his reply. Are quite obviously traits of humility. And self-conscious dependence. See it in two things in particular. One thing he says is the opening question. Lord to whom shall we go? What has he learned that would lead him to ask that question? He has learned as he's walked with Jesus, as he's heard of Jesus, as he's come to see who he is, he's learned that when he looks away from Jesus to everything else the world could offer, he's learned that there is nowhere else to go. There is only death and condemnation. There are no words of eternal life to be found apart from Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? Does that not convey a helpless position without him? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And if you think of what he says there in conjunction with the question, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Doesn't that make clear that the idea is you alone have this? You alone have the words of eternal life. A total sense of dependence, complete dependence. Almost as if, Peter believes that Jesus is something like the true bread, the only bread that brings life with it, which he has to eat if he's going to have life in himself. Almost as if Peter thinks that, which of course is exactly what Jesus has just confessed. But Peter's humility here also reveals his understanding that it's not just the audible hearing of these words that grants life, As we've been saying, no, I must receive these words. I must believe them. Take them into myself. Verse 47, those who believe have eternal life. Peter says this here, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God. If the first reaction to Jesus is prideful rejection of him. The second is the opposite. The second is an acceptance of Him, but an acceptance that is couched in, that's based upon, that requires humility. Not a false humility, but a proper humility that really senses where I am, who I am before this perfect, holy, righteous God who would condescend to me in gentleness, in mercy. In grace. This requires humility. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. And the idea is one of a stooping down, an intentional eye to. He regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Oh, he knows them. But he refuses to draw near to them in his gracious, merciful love. He regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. So see it in these first two responses. See the dichotomy here. The many walk away from Jesus at his insistence of their inability and their helplessness. The twelve present a believing response. A believing response that's based upon their acknowledged helplessness. To whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And the result in the rest of their life is that whereas, verse 66, whereas the others no longer walk with him, those who depend upon him walk with him all the days of their life. He will never depart from them. They will never cease walking with him, walking after him, growing more and more into conformity to his image. They are his. They're his because The Father has given them to the Son, and no one is able to take them out of his hands. And that belonging to him is not only reflected in between their ears, it's reflected by their feet. Now, we've said there are three responses in this text. There isn't actually a third response, because this third response is a particular type of the first response. And yet, this has unique features of its own, and it's emphasized in our passage separately. So I want us to do the same this morning. The third response that we'll see here, we could call a temporary appearance of acceptance. And the one who will serve for all eternity, as the classic, the infamous example of this, is Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Did I not choose you, the twelve? In actuality, what he's referring to here with this choosing is a pretty basic thing. He's referring to the simple act of choosing them to draw near to him as his twelve. It's described in Luke 6.13. He called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. He chose the 12 that he would allow to draw especially near to him, into his inner circle. This should not be equated with the realities he's been speaking about here earlier, of the Father giving people to the Son. This, This choosing is not speaking about That And that's obvious because what he emphasized when he spoke of the Father giving a people to the Son, what he emphasized in verse 39 is that he would lose how many of them? One of them? None of them. He would lose none of those whom the Father has given to the Son. That's not what he's describing here. What he's emphasizing here is exactly what a privileged position Judas enjoyed. I mean, it speaks to the depth of his betrayal. And it's captured in that simple descriptor here uh, that's emphasized. Judas, one of the twelve. One of the twelve men on earth closest to Jesus, having spent the most time with Jesus, having heard the most from Jesus, having seen the most from his displays of power and authority. Judas, one of the twelve. He says, have I not chosen you? And yet one of you is a devil. And the one he speaks of is the one who it says in verse 71 was going to betray him. Likely we all here know enough of the end of the story to know that that's exactly what will happen, won't it? And now that it's been stated here, we'll find it at times in the background. As Jesus walks and prepares his disciples for his crucifixion. The fact of it is something that's good for us to consider. The fact of this temporary acceptance. Which is what we see in Judas. Means that we have to to be able to make some distinctions in our mind. We have to think about the difference between. We could say the difference between graces. That God gives us. When he gives us a gift that is not deserved. But it's a good thing. He's being gracious to us. Isn't he? What about for Judas? Was it gracious for Judas to be given such proximity to Jesus? Such access to him? We would have to say certainly. It's tremendously gracious. Countless others did not receive that wonderful opportunity. How gracious of God. But did it save him? A great act of kindness from God, the benefits that Judas received. But it is saving grace that one must receive if one is to belong to Jesus, if one is to become a Christian. Certainly those graces, such as the ones that Judas experienced, those kindnesses have their benefits in this world. And the unregenerate can enjoy some of those benefits and walk in them for a time. Live for a time among God's people. See his love on display. See your needs met. See people care for you above themselves. See joy on display in this world. Those things will benefit you. And the unregenerate can enjoy some of those things and walk in them. What they will never do is persevere in them. They will never continue in them. They will never draw near to the Lord Jesus through them. Jesus will say in John eight we're getting nearer to this chapter. He will say, if you abide in, if you continue in, if you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And what is he emphasizing there? Not the temporary presence exposed to his word, but the abiding in his word. And this same gospel writer, John, will talk in one of his epistles about those who, like Judas, walk in the light for a time, but do not persevere. 1 John 2.19, he'll describe them in this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. In a very personal instance, Paul will reflect at the end of his ministry on a longtime companion in gospel service named Demas who winds up deserting him. What was revealed by the fact that Demas deserted the church? Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.10 was that Demas was, quote, in love with this present world. That's what his departure reveals. We thank God for those great graces that he gives to us. We thank God if he has given the opportunity to be raised in a Christian home, uh, to have lived long in the church, to have had the benefit of good teaching. We could go on. We thank God for those things. But Judas Iscariot makes it abundantly clear that we are capable of being exposed to and even benefiting from those good gifts and still not coming. And bowing our lives before the great gift giver himself. That can happen. And it is so helpful for us to know that that can happen because it sharpens our minds onto what the ultimate question is for us How can I be saved? How can I have confidence? The question for us then is not do I go to church? Have I been trained to be able to uh, coherently answer someone when they ask me what is the gospel? Can I give a coherent answer? Those are not the questions. Those are good things. If you can, it's the result of God's grace in your life. But that's not the question. Our question is, have I repented from that universal starting point of all mankind called unbelief? Have I turned? Have I bowed low? Confessed my sinfulness to God, confessed the rightness of his condemnation of me in my sin, and clung to the great offer of forgiveness that he has extended in the person of his Son. That's the question. Is Jesus Christ my life? Is he my hope? Is he my peace? Even through someone like Judas Iscariot, the Lord teaches us and sharpens us. And we'll close this morning with with two considerations based on the entire passage, based on what our Lord has shown us here. The first is this, if it's true, if he is my life, my hope, my peace, then what is the worst that this world will be able to do to me? If he is my life. Then the darkest and hardest moments. Will at their worst. Only be able to carry me to the place of the question. Which sometimes can be. A painful question. It will only be able to carry me to the question. Lord. Where else shall I go? For I know that you alone have the words of eternal life. We're sure to walk through dark valleys in seasons, aren't we? We're quite capable in those times of being shaken, of being confused, of being discouraged, and even of sinning against God in our responses. Thank God for his patience and his abundant forgiveness in Christ. We're fully capable of that, but those seasons will not separate us from our Lord because our union with him isn't due to the clarity of our minds. Or the strength of our wills. It's due <laughs> It's due to the strength of our Lord's hold on His children, as He tells us that there is none who is able to tear us from His hands. What comfort? Secondly and finally this morning, if it really is true what he's been saying in this entire text, that we're this dependent on Christ, if that is true, here's the final thing I would have us think about. Do I sense then, if I'm that dependent on him for all things, do I sense how vital it is that I be drawing near to him constantly in my life? I love my kids. I want to be a good parent. I love my wife. I want to be a good husband. I care about making a good impact among those God's placed me with in my workplace. I I care about, uh, about being impactful for good. I want to leave a legacy of faithfulness for my grandchildren to look back on and to learn from. We sense, rightly, the importance of those things. What expectation can I have of those not becoming train wrecks if I neglect the habits of spiritual discipline that God has commended to me? If I neglect the means of grace that God has prescribed, that He has given us to grow in His grace? Things like the reading of His word, prayer, corporate worship, fellowship with other believers. I'm this dependent upon him, utterly dependent. How can I expect anything other than train wrecks if I neglect to walk after my Lord and to pursue him, to draw near to him? True enough, God is abundantly gracious and I may neglect those things and by God's mercy there may not be train wrecks at the end. The question is, what right would I have to expect anything else? Or will I simply presume upon the grace of God? May we obey the words of James 4.8 when he tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus Christ is all that we need, my friends. He is everything that we need. And we need him desperately. May we receive the grace to walk close to him all the days of our lives to the end. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we sense all the time, perhaps more every day that you allow us life on this earth. We sense the truth about ourselves, that apart from you, we are hopeless. Apart from you, there is no meaning to what we would do. Apart from you, there is only death. It makes us tremble at the thought, but it makes us shout for joy as we consider what you have done for us in your Son. You have done for us, oh, so much more than we even understood when you brought us to yourself. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us, for your mercy that is new every morning. We thank you for your grace that is so dedicated to our sanctification by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for us here, that we would grow in the grace of Jesus Christ by your Spirit, that we would be sanctified by your Word, by the truth, that it would bring forth fruit of the Spirit in our body as we love one another. God, protect us from sin, protect us from the tempter, protect us from our sinful hearts. And We thank you that Jesus is indeed everything that we need. Help us to rest in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank God for his word given to his people once again this morning. Let me invite you. Would you stand with me? Let's respond to our God.